cover half of the cost. Is it okay? winter series of fellowship presentations and we've had fellow after fellow and I think this is a sort of farewell to a cycle of fellows that we've had um, in residence. We've had four or five almost at a time this year um, and we're just sort of beginning another cycle um, and welcome to our newest fellow uh, who I think is in the room, Sue Chen. Here you are, Sue. Welcome to you too. And we'll be looking forward to your lecture later in the year. So there'll be another round starting in September. Um, tonight's lecture is by Professor Ihan Akhtar, Professor of Sociology from the Istanbul Bilgi University, who will speak on the topic Mimicking the Foes, Turkish Commemorations of Gallipoli, viewed from an Australasian perspective. Ihan's fellowship has been supported by past and present members of the National Library Council. As we begin, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, past and present, and extend this respect to other Indigenous people present. But tonight we especially acknowledge the sacrifice of all people on all sides of the conflict at Gallipoli, and in particular pay respect to the contribution of First Nation peoples and minority peoples, for reasons which you'll understand perhaps as you speak. We especially welcome tonight members of the diplomatic community, and I convey apologies from the High Commissioner of New Zealand. I also want to acknowledge the advocacy of military historian Professor Peter Stanley, who is here, uh, Peter. Um, Peter introduced, is responsible for introducing IHAN to the National Library and also to a very wide network of scholars and fellows working in the field around Australia and New Zealand, and we thank you for that, Peter. And I just want to have a little advertisement to the book that was launched just last Thursday. Peter's newest book has been published with the National Library and very fittingly and sadly and aptly is called The Crying Years, Australia's Great War. Since 2014, Ian has been conducting fieldwork and research on Gallipoli war, war memory, remembrance and the contemporary Islamisation of Gallipoli narratives in Turkey. In tonight's lecture, he's going to present some of the outcomes of his fieldwork, as well as to insights that he's gained about the Australasian perspective on these commemorations and an unfolding narrative of Turkish history through his research that he's been conducting at the library. Professor Akhtar was one of the very first social scientists to address the problems of discrimination, assimilation and forced migration of non-Muslim minorities particularly Greeks, Armenians and the Jews, during the late Ottoman and the Republic period in Turkey. He has been a courageous scholar, while quite at the forefront of changing debates about the narratives of Turkey nationalism and the economy, genocide and minority studies. With a multitude of books and publications to his credit, and I won't try and pronounce them in Turkish, um, his 2012 edition, An Introduction to the Memoirs of Captain Sarkis Torosian, an Armenian artillery officer who fought at the Ottoman army during World War I, 
or in the Ottoman army during World War I, titled From Dardanelles to Palestine, initiated really heated debate both in Turkey and internationally, a debate that has continued until a recent issue of the Journal of Genocide Research. From the library's perspective, it's been a joy to have you here, Ayan, a distinguished and senior scholar who's really brought fresh Turkish eyes to the Anzac issues and Gallipoli experience that so preoccupy Australasian history. Fellowships, though, are more than just about research. They're about people. And while here, Ayan has been a charming mentor, educator and guide to the other younger scholars who have been in residence at the same time. He also established a very warm relationship with Paul Diamond, the National Library Fellow, who was the curator, who is the curator of Māori at the National Library of New Zealand. And tomorrow, um, Ayan's off to New Zealand to spend five days with researchers there and to give a presentation at the National Library of New Zealand. And for that, we are grateful for the networking that you have done while here. So we thank you for your charming presence, but your excellent, wonderful, interesting scholarship and great narratives and stories, and we hope that your research really does reach a wide global audience as a result of the extra work that you've been able to bring and perspective that you've been able to bring through your role at the National Library. Welcome to Professor Ayan Akhtar. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. I'm flattered. Uh, it was indeed a great pleasure uh, to be in the National Library of Australia in the last three months. Here I would like to express my gratitude to the past and present members of the National Library Council who supported my fellowship in 2017. Last three months were a kind of academic paradise for me. I thank you again. In 1965, commemorating the 50th anniversary of landing to Anzac Co, the Australian Returned Services League, RSL, and its New Zealand equivalent officially organized a tour for three weeks, uh, a cruise around Mediterranean. First pilgrims participated to this tour, 316 of them who were mostly veterans of First World War, and some of them were from the Second World War. Uh, they were around 70 years old, and all their expenses were covered by RSL. Prominent historian, Professor Kenneth Inglis, wanted to participate in this tour for his academic project. He was interested, uh, and he was a pioneer of uh, memory studies in Australia. He wanted to uh, see the Anzac's experience and memory by, you know, participating to the tour. However, the cost was £650. He convinced his employer, Australian National University, to pay half of it, and the other half was paid by Canberra Times on this tour. He represented this newspaper over there. Uh, uh, he sent seven dispatches to Australia, and they were published in Canberra Times between 15th of April and 1st of May 1965, they could be regarded as one of the first and genuine coverage of Anzac pilgrimage in Australian press to this day. Today, uh, I shall be uh, talking about uh, mimicking their foes uh, by using Professor English's dispatches and notes preserved in this uh, institution 
And uh, I shall try to illustrate how remembrance and commemoration practices on Gallipoli had evolved in Turkey. I also attempt to demonstrate how the Islamist politicians in Turkey have developed their alternative forms of commemoration by mimicking, imitating Australians since the year of 2000. By doing that, I will try to follow how the Australian press reported the changing forms of commemorations and rising Islamic narratives in relation to Gallipoli. In 1965, Australian pilgrims flew from Brisbane Airport to uh, uh, Athens via Manila and Hong Kong. As expected, the military band at the airport was playing waltzing Matilda while they were landing. From Athens, they took the Turkish liner, Karadeniz, which is on the background, uh, to visit Sicily, Malta, Tobruk, Cairo, Beirut, and finally Gallipoli. Throughout journey, pilgrims visited all these uh, uh, war cemeteries and memor memorials, uh, you know, in, all, in those cities, and they paid their respects. In the morning of 25th of April 1965, Karadeniz anchored at the Anzac Co and 70 of the remaining first dayers who were in good physical condition left the ship with boats and landed uh, on the shore. They were greeted by a group of Turkish veterans who fought uh, the same war and on the other side of the trenches. <clears throat> and this interaction, this encounter, was uh, told by uh, Inglis in a beautiful way. Uh, you know, a bent old Turk with a white beard, cloth cap, and missing legs stands grinning alone. Turkish General Selahattin Selesik says through an interpreter that the Anzacs are noble enemy. At 5.55, they get the orders all aboard, please, and an old Turk says to an Anzac, through an interpreter, I hope you live to see the 100th anniversary. Uh, Professor Inglis not, not only told the story of Anzacs on the battlefields after 50 years, he portrayed the, a truthful picture of national secular official Turkish narrative on Gallipoli. And he was doing this, and he was at the same time contrasting the Anzac narrative with the Turkish one. He was trying to underline the complexities of mutual perfect perceptions of the former foes. For instance, in a special pamphlet published by the Turkish Ministry of Tourism uh, for this occasion, it was stated that Gallipoli campaign was a battle waged by the Turks, quote, to protect their freedom and country. Ken Inglis emphasized this was, this was a notion which seemed to strike some of the old invaders for the first time. Again, uh, Inglis was uh, following uh, uh, the, the Turkish uh, uh, narrative, how the uh, image of Mustafa Kemal, later Atatürk, was structured in the Turkish commemoration practices. Another quote, uh, he's talking to a young uh, officer and says, Çanakkale is our most magnificent battle. Uh, why? Because Atatürk was there, he answered. As a lieutenant colonel in charge of the 19th Infantry Division at Erebunlu, he saved the day on 25th of April. And as a full colonel in charge of six divisions, he drove the British back to the water after their last throw in August at Sula Bay. Professor Inglis was, 
very much aware of the central role attached to, to, to uh, Colonel Mustafa Kemal in the secular nationalist narrative structured in the 30s. Uh, yes, it glorified uh, the military leadership of Colonel Mustafa Kemal, and uh, 30 years later, in 1996, uh, when he was uh, giving a talk at uh, University of Melbourne, he underlined the similarities between Anzac and Turkish interpretations of Gallipoli campaign from the point of nationalism. While summarizing the conversations with the Turkish university st students, he was, you know, uh, a bit uh, surprised to see that both Turks and Australians are uh, similar understanding of uh, Gallipoli, Çanakkale in Turkish as a kind of a formative battle for their nationalism. Uh, at his talk at Melbourne University, Ken Inglis underlined the organizational problems experienced during the trip. For example, he also underlined the ignorance of Turkish military authorities at Gallipoli. The organizers, the military, believed that their enemies at Gallipoli in 1915 were uniformly British. They were unable to differentiate Anzacs from, from the British. For instance, the organizers arranged an extravagant ceremony for the Anzacs down on the tip of Gallipoli Peninsula at the huge British memorial at Cape Palace. Poor Australians tried to persuade their host to get the pilgrims to Lone Pine Cemetery before the sunset that day. Very discreetly, Professor Inglis was also connecting two seemingly separate but interconnected incidents, which one of them still a sensitive issue in modern Turkish history. On 25th of April, the Allies landed at Gallipoli. But a day before, on 24th of April, more than 250 Ottoman Armenian politicians and intellectuals were rounded up and deported from Istanbul to the inlands of Anatolia. Therefore, 24th of April is a crucial date for Ottoman Armenians, a day that is regarded and commemorated all around the world as the beginning of Armenian genocide in 1915. Professor Inglis was trying to explain the fact that Turks commemorate and mourn for the fallen soldiers at Gallipoli, but this simple act of remembrance could have been a cover for not to remember the sad fate of Ottoman Armenians. Another peculiarity of the uh, Turkish narrative is related to the dates. He was again careful to notice that Anzacs remember 25th of April. But Turkish uh, commemoration practice is based upon 18th of March. 18th of March is a, uh, a day of the uh, Allied Navy attacked to Dardanelles, tried to pass, and they couldn't. And uh, they were, uh, you know, having damages. Three of their ships sank, and uh, Ottoman artillery, together with the minefields, inflicted considerable damage on the Allied Navy. And that 18th of March is the day of martyrs today. And it is officially commemorated. On his return in 65, uh, Professor Inglis has uh, prepared a questionnaire and sent it to all uh, ex-servicemen participated to the tour. And out of 184 old diggers, 146 of them filled the questionnaire at home. They also wrote letters. All this material now is at the uh, National Library uh, manuscript section. And he wrote a short report called, titled A Self-Portrait of the Anzac Pilgrims. But in his talk at Melbourne University 30 years later, he said, 
uh, that he wrote a book. He wrote a manuscript about that trip, but he didn't like the tone. He didn't feel it was all right, and he decided not to publish it. Unfortunately, that manuscript is not in here. I hope someday it is going to be published. Uh, returning back to the peculiarities of Turkish secular nationalist narrative, which were not mentioned by Ken Inglis, we can add the following themes. Starting from 1930s onwards, uh, the uh, Turkification program, which was dominant in Turkey, not only on economy, not only on politics, but at the same time on history. And according to that, uh, uh, Turkish nationalism tried to perceive the Turkish past, Turkish history, from the point of nationalist perspectives. Uh, military history of the First World War was the epicenter of this Turkification process. Here, the Ottoman Imperial Army, Osmanlı Orduyu Humayunu, was converted into a Turkish army, Turk Ordusu, by historians. Hence, other ethnic groups such as Kurds, Arabs, Circassians, Albanians, Georgians, and non-Muslim minorities like Greeks, Armenians, Jews, who were drafted into the army in 1914 and fought on several fronts heroically, were either not mentioned or were treated as if they never existed. The military history functioning unit functioning under the Turkish chief of staff in Ankara finally published the official history of Gallipoli battles in three volumes between 1978-1993. Keeping in mind that Charles Bean published his story of Anzac in 1921, and British general Cecil Aspilalogander published his military operations, that's the official history of British, in 1928 and 32. The Turks were at least 50 years late in presenting their official version of the story. If it is read carefully and comparatively, the Turkish official history is a bad reputation, reproduction or you know, imitation of Australian and British accounts. But interestingly, in glorifying the role of Mustafa Kemal and neglecting the role of German military personnel at Gallipoli, these three accounts are in agreement. In sum, the secular nationalist narrative developed in the early years of the Republic presented Gallipoli battles as the Turkish army defending the fatherland. Uh, the British French Anzacs were the enemy, but not the infidel or crusaders. Uh, German allies, allies or the, of the Ottomans were either ironed out or mentioned as incapable bunch of officers who were also had colonial aspirations in Turkey. Backbone of Islamist narrative, i.e. Muslims coming all over the Islamic world defending the house of Islam against the infidel was never mentioned. Now, Starting from 1920s onwards, there has been always an Islamic narrative operating in the undercurrent, opposing to the secular nationalist one uh, in relation to Gallipoli. Although this was mostly expressed in literary works and poetry, never at the level of military history, it was there. The first, maybe the most powerful example in this literature is the poem titled To the Martyrs of Çanakkale that belongs to Islamist poet Mehmet Akif Leiter Ersoy. This is published in 1924. 
Mehmet Akif was a very powerful poet, and the lyrics of the Turkish national anthem is a poem, you know, written by him. Uh, this poem portrays all Gallipoli battles as a kind of resistance of the army of Muslims against the infidel. It's a long uh, poem, 84 lines, and it's divided into three sections. I mean, that's the beginning. Uh, it says, tries to show the intensity of the war, and he says, what a dishonorable gathering. After this introduction, Mehmed Akif goes on, describing the, the both sides, especially underlying multi-ethnic, multinational characteristics of the invading armies. Peoples of seven climates marching in unison, Australia goes goose-stepping with Canada. Different faces, languages, skin tones, everything so different, but the mindless ferocity. And uh, now we should, we should try to understand one thing. Turkish nationalism was a newcomer, newcomer to the stage. It developed after the Balkan Wars, 1912-1913. Okay? And... Turkish nationalism was an imported commodity, imported ideology. Turks were influenced by the French. You know, French Revolution was the kind of source of inspiration for the young Turks in the beginning of uh, 20th century. Uh, yes, there were some nationalist uh, theoreticians talking about it, but after the Balkan War, the masses or the middle classes in urban centers uh, approved and accepted nationalism. Uh, in her uh, book, Leah Greenfield, Nationalism, Five Rules to Modernity, she argues that the act of importing the idea of a nation is essentially an act of imitation. You like something very much, and you import it. You try to be something like that. Okay? And by adopting it, you think in the long run, teleologically, will become as good as French. Okay. But this aspiration or this love affair has certain sociological limitations. I mean, in the important part, there are so sociological dynamics which stops or hinders the development of the idea of nation. And at that point, the importer develops a feeling of inferiority. That is called ressentiment. It's not resentment. We use the term in French. It's a term Nietzsche used first, and later uh, it was developed by Max Scheller. Ressentiment refer refers to a psychological state resulting from suppressed feelings of envy and hatred, existential envy, and the impossibility of satisfying these needs. Quote. In certain cases, especially in the Russian nationalism, where indigenous, indigenous cultural resources were absent or insufficient, ressentiment was the single most important factor determining the specific terms in which national identity was defined. Wherever it existed, it fostered particularistic pride and xenophobia providing emotional nourishment for the nascent national sentiment and sustaining it whenever it faltered. If you read Mehmed Akif's poems from that perspective, it is full of ressentiment. For example, later, if the masks had not been torn away, the faces would so still be admired. 
but the whore called civilization is far from blameless. Then goes, tells the war. The, the war story uh, is, uh, you know, uh, I mean, when you read these lines, the Western civilization is attacking. Christian civilization is attacking to the Muslims. And the Muslims can defend their land only, only with their faith. I mean, how can the shield of faith not prevail? What power can make the religious men bow down to their oppressors? These are very strong words. And, uh, and also praising martyrdom, death and sacrifice in the last two lines. And he goes, comparing 1915 Ottoman army with the crusaders, uh, I mean, the army of Saladin fighting against uh, the crusaders in Jerusalem. <clears throat> uh, this prose, the, the, this poetry is, is very strong uh, and uh, he glorifies, the poet glorifies the idea of martyrdom in such a way that he proposes that Kaaba in Mecca should be considered as a tombstone for the fallen soldiers and blue sky as the dome of their tomb. The poem, in memoriam to the martyrs, unites Turkishness and Islam within a war epic. Now, this was a kind of kanun where Turkish Islamists inspired their ideas. Starting from 1990s, Islamist parties became the integral part of the Turkish political life, especially election victory of Islamist party that brought Tayyip Erdogan to power as the mayor of Istanbul in 1994, uh, introduced first time uh, the, the, the cultural politics of these uh, Islamist parties. Uh, a mayor, Islamist mayor of Zeytinburn, a borough very close to the Istanbul airport, he visited Australian war memorial in Canberra and other Anzac monuments and shrines in various cities. He tells his encounter at Australian War Memorial Canberra in a speech delivered in 2016. Now, from the speech, you see that he's a bit shocked what he saw over there, and he, he tries to explain, look, Australians living 20,000 kilometers away from Turkey, they're doing their best to promote the idea of Anzacs and so on for their own purposes. Okay, and we live in Istanbul, only five hours away from Gallipoli, and we don't do anything. And it says, in the year of 2000, municipality of Zeytinburnu set off its connection to Gallipoli. Later, this has become a state policy of the government, which is true. Uh, very much influenced by the Anzac spirit, uh, he decided to bring residents of his municipality, which is, you know, five hours away, uh, from Istanbul to the battlefields. <clears throat> he said, Çanakkale is the womb of, out of which the Turkish Republic came. Our forefathers united and fought together. Mr. Aydın's uh, revelations are important. I mean, uh, that's him with, uh, during his election campaign with Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, because contrary to the common perception, nationalism does not only flourish within the national, uh, uh, within the nation state. I mean, we develop our nationalism 
in interaction with the others. I must tell you something. In 1980, uh, we had a coup d'etat happened in Turkey. It happened many times. Uh, and I was assistant at that time, newly appointed. And some of my friends, classmates, were quite, you know, prominent figures in Turkish socialist movement. And they had to run away. Some of them learned how to do, you know, uh, uh, windsurfing and so on in order to go to uh, Greek islands, only a few miles, you know. And they stayed in Germany for five or six years and then amnesty and everything, everything was cooled down. They returned. These guys were socialists when they're gone. But after five years, they returned as Turkish nationalists. I mean, how did it happen? Yes, probably they were treated badly, discriminated by the Germans over there, but they developed their own nationalism vis-a-vis -vis Germans. And Mr. Aydin is developing his nationalism, Islamic version, by looking at the Anzacs and the Anzacs uh, uh, story. Uh, <clears throat> starting from the year of 2000, Zeytinburnu municipality, formerly a working class neighborhood, began sending uh, residents free day tours to Garipoli. These are the buses. And then uh, he tells to a, a Canadian journalist, in the year of 2015, he was, I mean, the municipality was uh, allocating 350,000 US dollars. And between 2000 and 2015, about 200,000 of his constituents had participated in the tours, nearly two out of every three people living in the borough of Seytenburn. And it was an emotional trip and so on. He says, it's like a half pilgrimage to Mecca. They cry, they want to go back again, they empathize with those who died over there. Uh, here, Mr. Aydin reveals another dimension of the Islamist pilgrimage tours to Gallipoli. Islamist uh, nationalist narrative glorifies death and sacrifice for a great cause. Martyrdom is extolled in every occasion. And for that reason, uh, the, 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 look at the uh, slogans written on the, on the buses. Martha, the youth is following your example. On the way to Gallipoli, following the footsteps of our ancestors. We are living together with our martyrs and veterans. These are the slogans written on the buses. Zeytinburnu municipalities uh, are grandsons meeting their ancestors. Uh, There's something on the scarf. Municipality distributed as a gift to the uh, participants. This municipality's uh, uh, mobilization had an important repercussion. People started, the other mayors started to imitate them. Okay, if Zeytinburnu is doing that, the others are doing. I mean, they started to put money, they started to hire coaches, and they started to send their people. In, before 2000, maybe annually, oh, only 15, 20,000 people were visiting those battlefields. Uh, in 2015, 3 million Turks visited. That's a, that's a flooding of people. Uh, but, these are the that's one of the coastal artilleries, <coughs> Rumeli Mejidia. Uh, but there are two things in this trip. I mean, 
if you have the money, you hire the buses, you write a slogan on it, okay? You advertise the thing, people get together, put their names, but you need a human agent to tell the story. Who would be the human agent? In the beginning, they were simply hiring, you know, retired teachers, some old clerics, the ones who have the ability to talk to the crowd and who could start from the poem of uh, Mehmed Akif and improvise on it. Okay? This was the easy thing. Naturally, until 2005, uh, uh, until 2004, this went on. And the Secularist elite in Ankara, nationalist elite Ankara, uh, started to realize the importance of Gallipoli in 2004 summer. Mainstream newspaper covered one incident from their first pages. A primary school teacher, Mr. Sefer Göstepe, was prosecuted because of acting as a tourist guide and lecturing to a group from municipality in Bursa without having a badge given to professional tourist guides by the Ministry of Tourism. Being a tourist guy is a very important thing in Turkey. Okay, you take a uh, you take a course more than one year, and you make a tour of Turkey. It takes about two months, and then you are examined, and it's a long thing. Some of my classmates did it. It's a, it used to be a lucrative thing, uh, but uh, it's it's it requires a lot of you know education, and. Uh, for example, if I take all of you to Ephesus, I cannot tell the story of Ephesus to you. I'll be prosecuted. I, mean, I can take two or three friends there, no problem. But talking to the crowd is something reserved for the tourist guys. That's the thing. And this guy was talking to the crowd in Gallipoli battlefields. He didn't have the badge, and he was prosecuted. He was prosecuted, uh, according to Hurriet, uh, because of uh, tax fraud, getting money without declaring it, etc., etc. And according to Hurriet Daily newspaper, that's the mainstream secularist newspaper, uh, his mythologies were consisting of epic war sagas like 38 centimeters diameter projectiles fired from Queen Elizabeth battleship to the Turkish trenches were said to have been seized in the air by the Islamic saints who were supposed to be patrolling constantly over peninsula. Or a white cloud comes from down from the blue sky and the British Norfolk regiment vanishes mysteriously. Some long white bearded saints with white turbans and long green gowns made themselves visible to the infidel soldiers and poor soldiers, they got scared and ran away by leaving their guns. This was how the army of Islam won the war in 1915, according to Hurriyet. And also, that Sefer Göztepe committed a big crime, and it was rumored that he has said, Mustafa Kemal did not stay in the battlefields all the time. He was acting like a deserter managing the whole affair from a distance. And he was going to be, you know, prosecuted as a insulting to the memory of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. There's a particular law covering that. Uh, now, 
the things were going fast. These are the important two bestsellers telling the Islamic narrative about Gallipoli. Uh, that the one is 100th edition, the other one is 67th edition. In Turkey, minimum edition is either 2,000 or 2,500. If we are talking about 100th edition, that means 250,000 copies. Not even Nobel Prize winner or Hampamuk is selling that much in Turkey. Okay, and all these things, uh, the, the news which was repeated in several newspapers, must have created concern among the secular national circles in Ankara. In order to counterbalance Islamic narratives, Turgut Özakman, who is a prominent uh, guy, uh, uh, he wrote another book called The Relish Resurrection. Okay, this is a kind of a Bible for the secular nationalists in 2008. It made 132 editions until now. Interestingly, the content of the book was extremely secular, but the title, Resurrection, is rather biblical. Starting from 2000, a kind of competition started between the secularist uh, mayors and the Islamist one. They were all organizing tours to Gallipoli, look at the secularist ones, uh, their uh, posters, and they were trying to bring their people to the battlefield tourism. But one difference, secularist tours are, you know, basing Mustafa Kemal Atatürk's image uh, uh, to the middle and organizing their tours accordingly. The others are not doing that. Uh, 18 months later, after this publication pop-up of news uh, about Sefer Göztepe, the Ministry of Environment and Forestry issued a regulation. Uh, the tit its title is very uh, uh, simple. The Selection, Training and Working Principles of the National Park Guides. You know, when you read the regulation, there is nothing in it. There are national parks all, all around Turkey, and there has to be certain guides who will take care of the park and provide help to the visitors. But there is one thing. It says, in relation to Gallipoli Park, battlefield, in order to train those guides, we need the help of Turkish military, Turkish chief of staff. This is a very interesting uh, regulation. This regulation established a new type of profession known as battlefield guides. The regulation mandated that if anyone wants to be trained as a guide, he or she has to live in the province of Çanakkale, where Gallipoli uh, battlefields are located. This provision naturally eliminated self-appointed guides who preach Islamist narrative until then. It was a way of eliminating it. Another important matter was related to the training of battlefields, as I said, the strategic help received by the uh, state. Uh, these are the secular guys you see, uh, you know, part of tourism. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, probably a school teacher put tattooed uh, the, the signature of Kemal Atatürk. Um, this is serious. It was obvious that by eliminating the guides coming out of uh, Çanakkale and by giving the instruction 
from the Turkish army, secularist nationalist elite was trying to control the narrative. It was so simple. In September 2006, they opened the courses, and 695 persons graduated until 2014. As expected, covered women were not admitted to those courses, and organizers simply asked, hey, there is the dress code, this is an official thing, either you uncover your hair or just leave. Uh, as the result of new regulation put in force, the gendarmerie was stopping the buses and asking to the people, hey, hello, where are you coming from? From Konya, Central Anatolia. Okay, do you have a guide? No. Okay, take this one. And the gendarmerie was forcing, you know, creating jobs, employment for the guides. This was very nice. They were getting something like 160 liras per day, and 30 liras was going as a tax. And, you know, 130 liras, if you do it 10 times in a month, it's not a bad money. Uh, and it was an easy victory for the uh, uh, nationalist uh, elite in Ankara. I mean, they were able to stop the Islamic narrative, and they created a job. Probably, municipalities and mayors went to the prime minister and complained about it. That's my guess. I don't have any proof. Uh, soon, the Union of Professional Tourist Guides of Turkey pronounced their reservations about the competence of battlefield guides and took the case to the administrative high court. Their argument was legally sound and reliable. They claimed that they were the designated professionals having a total monopoly of work in these touristic areas, and these newcomers having few weeks of education are not entitled to do this job. And therefore, uh, they asked the badges distributed should be cancelled and the regulation to be declared null, null and void by the court. During the legal dispute, a journalist from Hurriyet, uh, this is a professional guy, I mean, this is a, a battlefield guy, another battlefield guy, a lady, Local representative of Union of Professional Tourists, Gallipoli, made a talk, you know, to the press, and he simply revealed the sociological dynamics behind this uh, new job. You know, 35% active state employees, either retired army officers or teachers. Excellent, isn't this? And this process, interestingly, uh, went on until 2014. In 2014, Ankara government passed another law. This time, they took the battlefield area from the Ministry of Forestry and pushed it to the Ministry of Culture. They said, this is not a park only, this is a cultural entity. Therefore, I mean, the logic was correct. The, 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 the Ministry of Culture should be able to take care of it. And they passed the law for that. They did not mention the name of battlefield guides. Immediately, those people turned out to be jobless. And their official status was not secured in the second one. And immediately, the local gendarmerie and the police forces did not 
stopped the buses and did not push these guys. And their income drained. Now what happened? Uh, they started to form groups. For example, these... <laughs> These are the uh, battlefield guys. Mostly they are uh, non-commissioned officers from the army or navy. Okay? Uh, they, they organize web pages like this. And uh, they formed an association. The, the name of the association is very funny. Association of Battlefield Guides and Devotion to Gallipoli Martyrs. Oh la la. Apparently, they tried to give the message to Ankara politicians that they were ready to incorporate the Islamist narrative. Although they were trained to preach the official secularist one, but they were ready to make modifications by putting a special emphasis on the spiritually elevating teams as long as their legal status, hence their extra income, is secured. Uh, they wanted this legal thing to be resolved. And it's been resolved. I talked to these guys, some of them at least. Uh, they say, they say, Professor, it's so simple. Somebody comes, calls you a municipality from central Anatolia. You answer back. They find you from the internet. And I say, okay, what's going on? They want a kind of religiously elevating, spiritually, you know, motivating tour. And I simply asked, you want, you want a, lot, a lot of tears, huh? They say, yes. And we arrange a guy who would, you know, provide that thing. Then we receive another telephone call from Istanbul or Ankara or Izmir saying that, you know, we have a group of 40 people, you know, coming, tourism company, etc. We want, you know, secularistic one. Mustafa Kemal is in the center. They provide that one too. They are trained for it. Now, the market forces is at this point, you know, shaping the narrative in Turkey. That's very interesting. Uh, and, you know, these guys at the end are kind of uh, actors. Look how theatrical he is. You don't understand anything, but he's telling... Poor Ottoman uh, soldiers were not fed properly. They were living in miserable condition. Look at him. Royal Shakespeare Company, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Now, uh, this uh, feeling of victimhood or this feeling of they didn't have the ammunition, they didn't have the food, they were living they were living in miserable conditions they were fighting without being properly fed, this is something always repeated for example uh, this is an important gathering uh, that is uh, uh, held during the holy month of Ramazan in 2012 uh, end of fasting day at Gallipoli Martyrs Memorial organized by the Ruling Justice and Development Party Istanbul branch. Uh, 
By launching this program, a deliberate attempt is made to increase Islamic sensitivity in relation to Gallipoli campaign. Okay, that's understandable. Uh, this menu is very funny, I tell you. Rye bread, cracked wheat soup and water. This was thought to be the menu of the soldiers. This is wrong. Uh, suppose that this meager menu was the daily ration of the Ottoman soldiers during the war. And the guy, you know, he was acting, he was telling this story. <clears throat> the program followed by reciting Quran, the poems of nationalistic uh, and Islamist uh, uh, feelings, uh, displaying uh, those feelings. Uh, as I said, uh, the, uh, the Islamist politicians try to present the Turkish nation as victims, downtrodden, uh, and they're living in poverty and deprivation. Now, as historians, we can simply say that, hey, this is not like that. Look, for example, a coach, Jamil Jung, commander of 4th Division, Gallipoli, and he tells the daily ration of the uh, soldiers. We have the menus. But telling these positivistic findings do not mean anything at all. Uh, and also, uh, following the poet, Mehmed Akif, again perceiving this, this campaign as jihad uh, in 1915. And here is a statement from Prime Minister Erdogan. says, nobody should say the Crusaders were this and that ever again. Crusaders were not finished nine centuries in the past. Gallipoli was a crusade. And he's telling us, uh, I mean, all the uh, individuals coming, soldiers coming from today's Syria, today's Palestine, uh, you know, uh, were coming as if they were the American communists uh, fighting for the, uh, during the Spanish Civil War under the organization of Abraham Lincoln Brigade. This is not so. Now, Let's go, let's do some positivist historian uh, attitude. Okay. Uh, all these provinces, Palestine, today Syria, were Ottoman provinces. Nobody was coming there as a, as a help, you know, as a, as a contributory to jihad. They were simply drafted to the army. And all these people were simply born as Ottoman citizens. Therefore, it's not serious. Okay, one of the other things which Turkish Islamists copied from the Anzacs was the 15th, uh, 57th Regiment March. Probably some of you have been to uh, down service. I was there this, this year. You know, it starts around 11 o'clock, 11.30, and it goes all the way uh, throughout the night, and it ends up around 6 o'clock in the morning. Throughout the night, they show you some documentaries, short films, uh, there are uh, hymns and uh, songs. Theoretically, it's a religious ceremony, but it's not religious at all. It is civic religion. Uh, at the end of the night, around 6 o'clock in the morning, 
uh, the ceremony ends and uh, the backpackers, youngsters, usually climb from Anzac Cove to Long Pine or Jongpair. That's the ritual. Uh, our dear friend Bruce Gates made a beautiful detailed analysis of the motives and sentiments of the different types of individuals visiting Gallipoli. And uh, they were the ones that are coming individually from Europe most of the time, because they were spending a year abroad. And uh, as one of them told the Bruce Gates, you can hear the explosions, the shouts, the accents as, as if you are there in 1915. It is possible to imagine the men as they climbed up the trenches. They all lie there now, in row after row, much uh, uh, as they did when they died. This is a kind of a reenactment. It's a soft version of it. I mean, if you want to re go to the reenactment of American Civil War, you can buy their rifles, you can put your the, the uniforms, you can even charge, but this is a soft one. And Turkish nationalists, Islamists, were following what was going on over there. And this is a photo of the, uh, this is the uh, facsimile of the map, uh, uh, morning of uh, 25th of April. As you see, the, the red side, the 57th Regiment is moving. And then they decided, Ministry of Sports and uh, uh, Youth decided to reenactment to of the March of 57th Regiment. Okay, now, but there are differences. The backpackers are individuals coming with their own money. The Turkish version is not like that. First, Ministry of uh, Youth and Sport uh, builds a huge, uh, massive camping place in the village called Kocadere. Okay, over there, they pray together and they live together, they eat together. And then the uh, state organization handpicks individuals throughout the country, puts them to the buses and send them here. Therefore, we are talking about a captive audience concentrated in this Kojadere camp. And this was the program of this year. I was there and I took the photograph of their program, I translated it. Look at this. As you see, this program is not a civic religion. It is hardcore religion. And uh, here, these two days, probably is perceived as a kind of you know, consciousness-raising program for the participants. Is it going to be effective or not? I don't know, because I know one thing. The participants, 1,900 boys, 900 girls, and 900 Boy Scouts. I mean, some of the boys might be there to meet some young girls. That's also a possibility. I mean, we cannot say that. We cannot say that they were all, you know, Islamist militants, you know, ready to die. Or, no, no, no. But I watched their march. These are the Wests distributed to them by the ministry. Grandpa, here I am, again glorifying martyrdom. And this is their walk. Uh, and they were, you know, 
uh, chanting slogans, Islamic slogans, and national slogans, and singing songs. Now, uh, when you take a look at all these, interestingly, Australian press was not much aware of it. Uh, I looked at the uh, uh, press in here. I was lucky, everything is here. Uh, starting from 2013, they started to realize something interesting is going on on the other side of the trenches. You know, millions of, peop of people coming to the battlefronts and pilgrimage tourism is blossoming among the conservative Turks and they couldn't find a plausible answer, but, you know, uh, for example, Ruth Pollard in Sydney Morning Herald noticed that something was strange going on over there, and he talked to historian Harvey Broadbent. Harvey Broadbent is a Turkish-speaking historian, and he tried to explain, yes, this new government is trying to diminish the central role given to Mustafa Kemal in the Gallipoli by doing that. But the things are more complicated than that. I mean, it's not the central law. Even if you distribute hundreds of posters of Kemal Atatürk, if you organize a two days, uh, you know, 57th Regiment reenactment, the result is rather different. Uh, and in, uh, when we come to the uh, 2015, Joshua Hammer of Smithsonian Magazine confronted the problem in a more inclusive manner. He interviewed the secularist Turkish tour guides, and then he went to a famous Gallipoli legend simulation centers, and he talked to some of the uh, participants of the tour over there. And uh, for example, a woman from Istanbul at the age of 30, she said, we are here to express gratitude to the sacrifice made for us. This was a victory of Islam. Uh, why it was like that? Why Australians were late? Uh, it was interesting because I discovered a PhD dissertation by Sharon Muskell there, and being a former uh, journalist herself, she analyzed the reasons behind that lack of enthusiasm to see the other side. Uh, she studied uh, how Anzac Day was reported in Australian press, both in here and abroad, and uh, she noticed one thing. She said, this job is given to the uh, most inexperienced guy in the newspaper, and they don't want to make mistake. They simply look at previous year's coverage, and they repeat that. And, you know, having the computer technology, internet, and everything, it makes life easier to repeat the uh, previous year. And for that reason, the Anzac Day's coverage is extremely dull without any, um, you know, uh, without any spirit. And it is understandable. Uh, but finally, I would like to say one thing. Uh, this Gallipoli is like a nice blanket. Everybody wants to cover his body with that, but everybody's legs are, you know, open to the cold. Uh, Gallipoli is a very sensitive thing uh, for the Turkish nationalists because Turkish foreign policy after the civil war in Syria is squeezed to the corner. There is a 
the distance between Turkey and NATO is opening up a bit, and for that reason, uh, the government has to keep population intact. And Gallipoli is a nice way of creating that feeling. I finish with a uh, clip. Uh, Prime Minister in those days, Erdogan in 2015, has read a poem belonging to an Islamist uh, poet. And I must tell you, I was coming home around 11 o'clock from a cocktail and a dinner. I was a bit pissed, you know. And I turned the TV on in order to watch the news, and I've seen that, and I became sober in five minutes. Uh, let me see.
this tells a lot, I suppose. Uh, this was shown in all private and state channels, 10 days, in the week of 25th of April 19, uh, 2015. Uh, now, Gallipoli turned out to be a place where, as I said, a kind of a blanket, everybody wants to hold it. Two days ago, uh, uh, the leader of the main opposition party, uh, Republican People's Party, made a conference, conference on justice, in the same youth camp which 57th uh, Regiment in reenactment was organized. And the first thing that he did in the morning, he walked from Kojedere village to Jongpayere, that two and a half kilometers, as a reenactment of the you know, Turkish soldiers. Therefore, it's getting crazy for the social scientists. This is not history. This is something else. But something else is important. Thank you for your patience. mentioned the title of Peter Stanley's book before the crying years and uh, one wonders if the crying years are returning a hundred years later. Wow, I'm sure that you have questions um, and we'll start with Bruce over there. I'll leave you to take them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because there were, you know, allied cemeteries and non-Turkish. 
and we said to each other, these poor guys died here probably from traffic accident. There's no enemy. Now, the new administration probably is creating Turkish ones. But the beginning was wrong anyway. And they are trying to create Turkish ones. But let me tell you another anecdote. The same military historian is an old man, retired officer. Uh, he's highly respected. And this newly appointed authority to run the peninsula, the president asked, calls, calls him one morning and he says, Sir, can I ask you something? He says, Go on, Mr. President, go on. And he says, Where was the uh, open uh, praying area for the Ottoman soldiers? What do you mean? There must be a praying area for them to pray. He said, they were not praying. If you want to raise your head in trenches, probably in 30 seconds you'll get the first bullet. Because distances between trenches were 50, 60 meters sometimes. He said, if you want to pray in Islam, you have to stand up. You cannot do that. There were no praying grounds. But I'm sure they are going to build one. And this is going to be another invention of tradition, Hobsbawm Manor, and people will come with the buses and will think that, yes, in 1915 our grandfathers were praying in that ground. Uh, I mean, uh, the camel's rea uh, reaction is correct. Which part of our body, my body is, you know, decent anyway? Uh, okay, another one? part of the battle, as I suppose. You're right. Uh, you know, in the, in the Turkish ones, there are several. Uh, the most common myth, myth is uh, a, a, a religious dignitary from India went to pilgrimage during the war. It was impossible to go anyway. I mean, if you know the Palestinian front, it was virtually impossible, but he went. He, he has been to Mecca, and then he moved to Medina to visit the tomb of Muhammad. He prayed, but he felt something uneasy. He felt sleepy, and he went and slept. In his dream, the prophet comes and says, My dear son, you came all the way from India to visit me, but I'm busy. I'm not in my tomb now. I'm fighting at the moment at Gallipoli. Yeah, this is, this is the thing. And certain things which are positivistically true. For example, as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, uh, Allied, uh, you know, commanders never used gas at Gallipoli. Why? It's so simple. There's a constant wind from north to south. If you threw the gas thing, it'll come to you. You wouldn't do that. But this wind, which is known in uh, Turkish Meltem, the Greeks use the same thing, Meltem, is interpreted with the God's wish we had north wind all the time. We rarely have south wind at Gallipoli. Very rarely. 
once or twice a year or five days a year. Okay. And you've seen this film. Everything is wrong there. Rifles are wrong. Uniforms are wrong. Ranks are wrong. Models are wrong. And they were praying the direction is wrong. Yeah, I mean, you have to pray to southeast from Turkey I mean, towards Mecca. I checked it in the Google Earth. They were, they were praying somewhere around between Budapest and Prague. Everything is wrong. And nobody said anything. Only, there was only one poor guy living in Gallipoli. He's an amateur. He's a collector of rifles and everything. He wrote a piece in his blog. And nobody said anything. Nobody in the military history section, none of the retired colonels who adored to make talks on everything, they never said anything. It's very sad. Uh, therefore, things are coming together. Uh, Certain positivistic things are interpreted at the, uh, you know, grace of God, etc. Any other question? Okay. I think you've left us all a little awestruck, actually. Um, it's the sort of talk that leaves you with that feeling of needing to go away and muse and muse and really kind of try to come to grips with what's going on in the world um, and we play our role and Anzacs have clearly from your perspective have played a role in this reconstructing of history and uh, a kind of a world view that is something that perhaps most of us are not aware of or don't have the press reportage as you've discovered from your resources that you've used doesn't give us that deeper meaning and deeper analysis of the situation. Um, when Professor Akhtar applied for the fellowship, the committee looked at it very carefully and said, we wonder if he will indeed be able to find press reports of the kind that he was looking for. He has not. I think that's true to say, has I, not. Uh, I found 25-30%, let's say. 25-30% of what he thought he might find, but he has found some other remarkable resources like Ken Inglis's papers, which he did not know were here, which we hadn't kind of expected might reveal what they revealed, and in fact have set off a quest that you've made through the ways in which Australians have in fact created our own Anzac legends and myths and, and rituals, most of all pilgrimages. And that has been a very interesting commentary to see the Turkish perspective back on our Australian um, imitation. imitation or Australian structure of the way we've commemorated the Anzacs as well. So this has been a really powerful fellowship in all kinds of ways, not for what you've necessarily found, but as much as for what you haven't found and what you've thrown down to us as a challenge. So with that, will you thank... Professor Akhtar for very, very meaningful fellowship. Do come and join him and us for some more refreshments. Thank you.